Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Hi, everyone. We're going to dive into a dialogue with a terrific special guest for our Earth Day uh, celebration. And uh, when I think about great environmentalists, I would be hard-pressed to find a living environmentalist who uh, is more of an icon, who has done more uh, for the environmental movement than the guy joining me right now, Dennis Hayes, one of the original co-founders of Earth Day. Uh, an advisor to the Carter White House, a great environmental advocate for many decades. Uh, Dennis, welcome to my environmental breakfast and also uh, my podcast. Uh, we're going to use this dialogue for both purposes. Thanks for joining me. Well, the, the downside of Zoom is that I can look at my own face while we're doing this and see myself blush. Thank you very <laughs> much for all the nice words. Well, absolutely. I, I hope you can kick us off by telling us a little bit about the original Earth Day. Um, where did you get this idea, and how did you so quickly pull off a feat that literally changed the world? Well, the idea for focusing on the environment, uh, which was not intuitively obvious at a time that the nation was being torn apart in the 1960s by the anti-war movement, huge tensions in the civil rights movement, especially after the assassination of Dr. King. We'd had cultural upheavals with the Summer of Love in San Francisco and Woodstock. And, uh, it, it wasn't obvious to very many people that, that we had ripe for an environmental movement. Gaylord Nelson, a senator from Wisconsin, had a sense that the timing actually was right. That there was a growing discontent about the way that the quality of life was deteriorating. Uh, and his idea was that we would have a a campus environmental teaching on colleges and universities. It turned out that was just about impossible. But we had an enormous amount of interest from young women, uh, 25 to 35, typically college educated, typically one or two kids, uh, typically a stay-at-home mom with a single wage earner family. Uh, and so we took those people who responded both to a full-page ad in the New York Times that we placed and that responded to the senator's early speeches and built them into an organizing focus. And uh, some of them proved to be just fabulous. I mean, for, for years, every time a, mem a member of a city council, a public utility commission, a state legislature, a member of Congress, they all came up and said the first thing they'd ever done political was that first Earth Day. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that backdrop. I, I have some young folks that are going to be listening to this dialogue, and, and they probably don't remember things like you know, rivers catching on fire and uh, you know, the threat of losing our national icon, the bald eagle, uh, because of DDT, and they, they may not know who Rachel Carson is. So talk about just how bad it was um, in terms of setting the stage for, for and, and the ripening of this event. Sure. There were any number of things that were going on. The, the air quality in major American cities like um, Gary, Indiana, Pittsburgh, Los Angeles, were roughly what they are today in Shenzhen and New Delhi. Sao Paulo. Uh, it was roughly the equivalent of smoking a couple packs of cigarettes a day. That was true even if you were six months old. You know? okay. And the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught on fire, notably in 1969, but it had actually caught on fire about 10 times historically before that. 
We'd had the Santa Barbara oil spill down the coast of ways from you in California. That just a huge plague. It made it clear that this stuff was affecting rich people as well as poor people. We had freeways cutting through inner city areas, uh, which showed that it was affecting poor people as well as rich people, because that's where the freeways drove, often destroying truly vibrant communities and with massive opposition to it. And there was lead paint peeling off walls. Uh, all of our uh, gasoline had lead in it. So all of that air pollution in places like Los Angeles was laced with something that harms the nervous system. And I can go on and on. The Great yeah. Lakes were dying. Uh, the use of DDT and some other pesticides was weakening eggshells, uh, notably the bald eagle, but also the brown pelican, the California condor, all sorts of species that were endangered. And all of this was mostly viewed as a series of discrete issues prior to Earth Day. And arguably, one of the greater things that Earth Day did was to take all of those separate strands and weave them together into the fabric of modern environmentalism. So Earth Day, uh, needless to say, was a, an enormous success within a very short period of the original Earth Day. Uh, just about all of the landmark environmental laws of this country, uh, although California got a little head start on it, but uh, the United States Congress and even the Nixon administration quickly got in the act. Talk about uh, that amazing uh, unfolding over just a few years after the first Earth Day. You know, what, what virtually everyone has forgotten is that one week after Earth Day, Nixon invaded Cambodia. And a couple of days after that, about May 4th, uh, some young frightened National Guardsmen on Kent State University at a student demonstration shot into the crowd, killed four students, wounded nine others. And the nation just basically erupted around that. And the environment, which had been front page above the fold, uh, was consigned to the back pages and buried in obscurity. That fall, uh, we set up a campaign against a dirty dozen members of Congress. Uh, we had the audacity to take on 12 incumbents uh, and we had a trivial budget, 50,000 bucks for the United States. Uh, but we, had, uh, we, we chose them carefully. They had terrible records, but they were also in districts that they carried by only a few percentage points. We had strong Earth Day organizers there with a lot of energy. There was at least one big environmental issue right in their districts. So we launched this campaign, took out seven of the 12, clearly with the environment being the margin of difference. And the first one to fall was the chairman of the House Public Works Committee. And that was like the shot heard around Capitol Hill. That's a big <laughs> trophy. <laughs> yeah, that's the pork committee. So that helped create the context within which uh, a month later, the, a Clean Air Act, which while not as revolutionary as one that Nicholas Petrus got through the California Senate, didn't pass the assembly, which would have banned the internal combustion engine in 10 years. <laughs> but we had a really, really strong Clean Air Act that passed the Senate unanimously on a voice vote and passed the House of Representatives with only one dissent. And that created then the context within which a Clean Air Act, an Endangered Species Act, a Marine Mammal Protection Act, Toxic Substances Control Act, the Superfund, National Forest Policy Act, and on and on and on for as you suggested, that, that first decade after Earth Day, um, the environment was an almost unstoppable force. Yeah. And, and Nixon, with an executive order, set up the EPA, appointed Bill Ruckelshaus to be the first head of it, and Ruckelshaus had the courage to ban DDT, to ban lead in paint, to ban lead in gasoline. It, it was a remarkable era. So but before we move on from these, these remembrances, uh, it, it's probably worth pausing to note that this was a bipartisan thing back then. As I recall, I, 
I think you were working with a Republican congressman named Pete McCloskey of Northern mm -hmm. California on a lot of this, and, and he uh, loves to tell these stories about working with you and, and others on, on the original Earth, uh, Earth Day. Now, Pete is a, a genuine hero. Um, Pete McCloskey, uh, before he became a member of Congress and a, and a lawyer, he was a, a Marine in Korea. And uh, he, he had the, the distinction of leading more bayonet charges than any American serviceman since the Civil War. So you don't question McCloskey's courage. And he, he won the Navy Cross, the highest award in the Navy. So when he came out against the war, when he came out on civil rights, when he came out on the environment, uh, he, he was a tough person for them to oppose. The, the great thing that has been forgotten is um, in those days, the Republican Party had a really progressive wing in it. Uh, the, the first African-American elected to the Senate since Reconstruction was Ed Brooke out of Massachusetts, a Republican. Uh, we had John Lindsay, the mayor of New York, a Republican. Um, uh, Mitt Romney's father, George Romney, a very progressive Republican governor and then Secretary of HUD. And so th th there were those elements. Uh, and in the Democratic Party, which has been forgotten, it was the solidly democratic, segregationist, ultra-conservative South. Uh, and they, they chaired most of the committees. And so we had a real political mixture that allowed you to, uh, in, in some senses, have more fun in government than we have today now that things are so highly polarized. You yeah. could play the odds and pull together unexpected coalitions. So it's, it's been 50 years since that original Earth Day. 50 years is obviously one of those milestones that causes us to take stock and, and reflect. Uh, I was able to be part of the 50-year festivities after um, the March for Voting Rights in, in uh, Selma with uh, the great John Lewis and, and President Obama joined us uh, at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And there was just a huge amount of reflecting because uh, obviously the, the fight for voting rights uh, goes on. Uh, so too with the fight to save our environment. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts as one of the original founders, you know, one might even say the John Lewis uh, of Earth Day, uh, 50 Bless years later. Uh, well, there, there is this, this unfortunate phenomenon in American politics um, of sort of the pendulum effect. Uh, we had Earth Day and the Dirty Dozen, and then 10 years of almost unstoppable environmental trends, which pulled the pendulum a fair distance in one direction, and it swung back with the election of Ronald Reagan replacing Jimmy Carter. Remember, Jimmy Carter had proclaimed as his goal to get 20% of all energy from renewable resources by the year 2000, motivated in part by getting off of Saudi Arabian oil, but in part by climate. Reagan repudiated all of that, brought in a guy named James Watt, an ardent anti-environmentalist at Interior, and Gorsuch, the mother of the Supreme Court Justice, is the worst, well, until recently, yeah. <laughs> the worst head of the EPA, and uh, pulled the pendulum way the other direction. And, and then we had the Clinton administration where a bona fide environmentalist was the vice president, Al Gore. Then we went into the George W. Bush administration, which was pretty anti-environmentalist, Obama, pro it. Then we finally have Trump, who, as you know, is rolling back now almost 100 laws, and regulations, and rules, and uh, legal decisions in court. Basically, a full-fledged assault on 50 years of environmental progress, so far off the canvas that you can't even chart where Trump is trying to go. And I guess the only hope is that the pendulum, which 
when you pull it really far in one direction, it tends to swing very far the other direction that we can use, uh, but has built up during the Trump administration to actually finally make progress on climate, which is the big environmental issue now facing us. Yeah. So I know in some ways, uh, 50 years later, it's harder to make that kind of progress because environmental protection, climate, um, they're, they're partisan issues now, and they didn't used to be. Uh, what are the other ways in which you think it's harder, and it, are there any ways in which it's easier now? Well, one way that it's harder, uh, and this is a relatively recent development, is that there is now a, uh, a lack of respect for science, a lack of respect for expertise, uh, a tendency to go with your gut instincts at the highest levels, even if your gut instincts are opposed by everybody with any formal training in it. And so that, 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 that certainly is a tough thing to overcome. You, you, you can't bring arguments the way that we used to when you marshaled data and looked at developments and trends over time. Uh, a thing that is in the long run very much to our advantage is that every year there is better environmental education that is going on. K to 12, people are leaving high school now knowing more about the environment than I knew when I graduated from college. And as they move on, we have, although it is being ignored at the moment, a body of expertise that is built up to let us know some of the things that are real problems and what some of those solutions should be. We've also had some innovation over the last 50 years that could, uh, could give cause for hope. Uh, wouldn't you agree? Oh, sure. I mean, when, when I was running the solar program, uh, photovoltaic panels, solar panels would cost roughly $50 a watt. Our goal was to get them down to $1 a watt. We had a strategy to get there by somewhere in the 1990s. Uh, those panels today, despite a huge amount of inflation since then, you can find for 30 cents a watt. Yeah. Uh, electric cars used to be basically glorified golf carts. You now have electric cars that are thus performing things on the road. You know, uh, can, can convey you for 280 miles, 300 miles. Uh, I run my uh, Chevy Bolt off of the solar panels on my house in the cloudiest major city in the contiguous 48 states. Those panels produce all of my electricity plus all of the power from my car. Uh, yeah, we, we, we've had great technical advances. And a lot of those, candidly, including the things that are making this conversation possible uh, in the internet, um, and, and the digital revolution broadly are living off of um, investments that we made in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, it, and many of them are governmental investments. Um, and we haven't been doing much of that of late. And I'm afraid now much of the rest of the world is catching up to us, has caught up to us, in some cases is passing us. And to the extent we would like America to be a leader, not so much because we care about being the technological leader, but because we think we have something to offer in democracy, the Bill of Rights, the rule of law, separation of powers. And if we can have a model that the rest of the world envies and admires, then all of the rest of that stuff can become part of it. Yeah, we're fighting to hang on to everything you just mentioned right now, uh, but I, I do agree with you. Let's talk about the political landscape today. Um, we have some newfound passion and engagement on the climate change issue. A younger generation, the Sunrise Movement and Greta and others that are really bringing a new energy and a new focus to the climate crisis. Um, we have communities of color 
who have figured out that uh, this is a hugely consequential issue for them. Um, and so I, I'm wondering if you see any parallels, you know, rewinding 50 years to the original Earth Day, to the kind of elements that made it possible for that huge success in 1970. Are, are the ingredients for a breakthrough on climate change uh, with us right now? And, and before you answer that, let me just tell everybody who's listening, uh, Dennis Hayes was talking about climate change even before Al Gore. So uh, <laughs> he was one of the original futurists who saw that this was going to be a real crisis. And, uh, you know, you have been slugging away for decades to, to try to make progress. What do, what do you think? Well, I'm not sure that I would trust my judgment because I, I got into this in part because I thought that would be a really easy issue to win. I mean, the tough issues are race, war and peace, those sorts of social injustice, economic uh, justice. But uh, I, I thought, wow, we, we know how to solve this climate thing. We just need to do it. Um, I, I suppose I could argue that there are some real similarities. The, the environmental movement was powered by young people, just as the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement Tiananmen Square and Hong Kong and Arab Spring. Whenever there's a big movement, it, it tends to be largely driven by young people. And, and that's certainly happening today with a broad, diverse young constituency caring about climate. Um, there are some difficulties uh, that, that were not there when we were addressing that other array of environmental issues. Uh, those were all relatively local or national in scope. And so they were things that Congress could pass a law and something like the EPA could enforce it. And you could take them to court and you could get a decision. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't make any difference whether you burn a ton of coal in Germany or in China or the United States. It's exactly the same impact on the atmosphere. So it requires a level of international goals that are broadly shared and, and ideally that are enforceable. We have a terrible record of enforcing anything internationally. And what's more, it's, it's at a moment when nationalism is in the ascendancy in the United States and the Soviet Union and China and Korea and uh, the Philippines and Turkey. And so that also militates against it. I, I don't want to have anybody think that this is going to be easy to accomplish. At the other hand, uh, sometimes massive change happens very swiftly when it absolutely has to. There's almost like there's something biologically built into us that requires us to preserve the species. And climate is now getting pretty close to that point where there are some tipping points that if we go over them, we are irreversibly, permanently altering and impoverishing our planet. And uh, we've got to avoid that. So uh, you have been advising Governor Inslee uh, and others on climate policy. Uh, I am on the select committee on the climate crisis back in Washington. and. Uh, have, have been in conversation with a few presidential candidates uh, in this cycle as well, developing some climate plans that are big and bold. And um, it, it's kind of refreshing to see presidential candidates uh, talking in those terms. We've never seen that before. Um, let's talk about next steps. Uh, assuming that we can get uh, th this corrupt administration out of office this fall and begin working on uh, a climate leadership role for this country, where do we need to go? Uh, well, this is another place where there's some similarities between the early environmental stuff in the 70s and now, in, in my view. Uh, that was in the early stages of the conservative economic revolution, and there was a huge amount of intellectual ferment about addressing 
pollution by charging for it. You find out what its environmental cost is, you somehow attribute that to the price of it and, and the, the magic of the market would take care of everything. Uh, it, it's pretty clear that that didn't work and where it tried for the most part, it failed. And where you got your greatest successes were with regulations that went in and said, you can't do that anymore here. You have this set of limits. The, the huge victories were generally banning something, banning lead and gasoline, banning DDT, banning yeah. um, leaded paint. Uh, similarly, with regard to climate, uh, everything has been thus far dominated in the policy realm by neoliberal economics by putting a price on carbon. So it's a tax on carbon, a tax on gasoline, a, a cap and trade system, which would effectively increase the price. That's hugely unpopular. Uh, in, in France, it led to the yellow vest movement. In Iran, the gasoline tax led to riots in the streets. I live in Washington, which uh, not quite California, but it's a pretty progressive, pretty well-to-do, pretty green, pretty well-educated state. And it has now twice rejected a $15 a tax, $15 a ton tax on carbon. Yeah. $15 a ton, nothing. A dollar a ton is about one cent a gallon. So let's say you, you tripled it and you had a 50, and there's not a politician, probably even you in America, who thinks we can pass a $50 a ton tax on carbon. And is there anybody that thinks that increasing the price of gasoline from $3 a gallon to $3.47 a gallon is going to bring in the revolution? Yeah. So what, what we're going to have is something that is, is often referred to now by the shorthand of the Green New Deal, but it's this huge package of different bold elements that would dramatically, through regulations, through incentives, through tax subsidies, through governmental procurement programs, do for what we need for sustainability exactly what we did for computer chips, what we did for the internet, what we did for jet planes. What we did. I mean, all of those things were the result of governmental programs with a vision. And that's what we need now with regard to addressing climate. Yeah. I was encouraged to hear you say that. Uh, there's a lot of buzz in Washington about carbon pricing, and I'm certainly open to it as one of the tools in combination with other things that, that we need to uh, address. But so many people think if you just price carbon, you can walk away and the problem solves itself. Uh, I don't buy it. And I, I think there's, as you've mentioned, there's, there's actual evidence to the contrary. Yeah, but it, it should be, I think, part of the solution because to the extent that the price is somewhat higher, it, it does make it easier for you to persuade people to behave the way that they should. But the principal benefit of a carbon tax is that it raises revenue by taxing something bad as opposed to raising revenue by taxing something that you want more of, like labor. And um, you can then use the revenues from that to make the other aspects of the Green New Deal more equitable for people who otherwise cannot afford it. It becomes a fund that you can allocate. So I, I, I didn't mean to be opposed to that as an instrument. Yeah. I just no. opposed to that as the be all and end all of policy. Same here. That's, that's the conversation we're having. I'm hopeful that the, uh, the report that our Climate Select Committee ultimately produces, it's been delayed now because of the pandemic, um, we'll, we'll strike that balance and make very clear carbon pricing is a good thing, but uh, it cannot be the only thing and it really only works in combination with all the other tools. Uh, but I just said the word pandemic and uh, I think it, it's a perfect way to close this great conversation, Dennis, to ask as, as the whole world grinds to a halt and we all live through this shelter in place reality that is unlike anything most of us have ever experienced, has that changed uh, the conversation on the climate crisis and 
saving this planet. Um, so what are your thoughts there? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an old man, so I'm not permitted to cry. Uh, but as somebody who's devoted evenings, weekends, and parts of the workday now for pushing toward three years to get for the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, a huge global outpouring involving north of a billion people demanding bold solutions on climate through gigantic crowd events from St. Peter's Square at the Vatican down to Rio de Janeiro up to Berlin to the National Mall in Washington, DC. Suddenly this thing <laughs> spins out of Wuhan and makes everything that we've organized illegal. I mean, we can't do it. it, it, it and, you know, for most things, you try to bob and weave and figure your way around it, but you don't want people to leave their homes. I, I'm not going to leave my home. And so all of that effort has, has uh, obviously been of incredibly discouraging in terms of how I'm closing out my career. But with regard to your specific question, I, I think on a number of environmental issues, uh, we've come to recognize one, the global interdependence of, of these threats and that there are things that no one nation can solve by itself. One of those is a pandemic, another one of those is climate change. Uh, pandemics, for the most part, I think are gonna be the so-called noootic diseases that go from animals to people and people to animals and um, where often we don't have any kind of natural immunity as a species because it's always before existed in chimpanzees or in gorillas or in bats or in birds. Uh, and as, as they come out, it's often as a result of people infringing upon the habitats where those animals lived. And they come then into relative proximity with people and the disease takes place. Uh, and I think that may well, if we're smart enough, cause us to put aside much broader nature reserves where these animals can live unmolested by people and we can have our crops and our industries and our homes in ways that aren't infringing upon theirs. With regard specifically to climate, um, the, the connection isn't a direct one. I don't think there's a, a climate link to COVID-19. Um, but there is this recognition that um, you need to have something that operates like the World Health Organization when it's operating well can do, like the Centers for Disease Control historically has been able to do. Um, uh, we, we've had that in the economic sphere with the World Trade Organization, which I have some personal very strong objections to, but if there is a trade agreement and somebody violates it, they come in with real sanctions that hurt. Uh, we don't have anything like that in the environmental sphere or in the realm of pandemics. And I, I think we need to start, despite the rising nationalism around the planet now, beginning to build the intellectual base for moving into something that allows international agreements and international enforcement. Well, Dennis Hayes, those are great thoughts. Uh, let me wish you a healthy and happy Earth Week and Earth Day. Uh, let me thank you for a lifetime of incredible environmental advocacy and leadership. And let me specifically thank you for joining all of us here today. Thanks very much. Well, it is my pleasure. And let me thank you for all the leadership that you've brought to this on Capitol Hill. Thanks, Dennis. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman. 